I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Band Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Among the many things that recent events and ongoing issues tell us, from the COVID-19 pandemic to the Black Lives Matter protests, not to mention climate change, is that we're in short supply of strong leadership. So in one sense, this episode is very much about leadership. After all, it's with someone who's responsible for driving progressive political and judicial reforms over the last 50 years, someone who is seen as transformational in her own right. But this episode is much more than that. It's a feminist and more broadly an intersectional critique of the pandemic and climate change. It's about how these amplify inequities in power, privilege, and justice across gender, race, and class. It's about reshaping the social license to operate between business and government to ensure a fairer post-pandemic society. It's about building back better. It's worth noting that we recorded this podcast just as the incomprehensibly tragic death of George Floyd emerged. So while we don't directly speak to it, make no mistake that the themes we talk about power, privilege, and justice are very much there. Which is why it's great to have my next guest, Mary Robinson, on the show. I can think of few other people who have the experience to weigh in on the intersection of climate justice and human rights. Mary is Adjunct Professor for Climate Justice in Trinity College, Dublin, and Chair of the Elders. She served as President of Ireland from 1990 to 1997 and UN High Commissioner for Human Rights from 1997 to 2002. She's a member of the Club of Madrid and the recipient of too many honors to recount, but I will note that she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Barack Obama. Mary's memoir, Everybody Matters, was published in September 2012, and her book, Climate Justice, Hope, Resilience, and the Fight for a Sustainable Future was published in September 2018. And last, Mary's also a fellow podcaster. She co-hosts the podcast, Mothers of Invention, which explores feminist climate change solutions. Welcome to the podcast, Mary. It's really great to have you here, and I appreciate you taking the time out of your uh, busy schedule. It's a pleasure. Excellent. So, before we dive into some of the issues like COVID-19 and, and climate change, I want to start back during your time in the Irish Senate in the late 1960s, when you introduced controversial bills like contraception, or family planning, the removal uh, of the ban on divorce. You described this work as touching a raw nerve. How would you characterize this raw nerve now in a global context, given the rise of populism and political uh, polarization. This, this raw nerve seems particularly exposed during crises like COVID-19 and around climate change. Yes, I think uh, it is fair enough to describe populism as touching a raw nerve uh, because people feel left out, marginalized. Uh, the inequalities become very apparent. And I think COVID-19 in many ways exacerbates all those inequalities uh, and it does it by also bringing out the intersectionality between the inequalities. And that's uh, also a feminist concept in a way. Um, uh, the links between poverty, gender, um, inequality, uh, being indigenous, being a migrant, being somebody with disability, all of that 
is exacerbated and, and even being in lockdown in an abusive household, for example, uh, greatly aggravates the, uh, the, the abusive um, conditions for women and children. And so, and indeed early child marriage in many countries because of uh, the lack of any other alternative and another mouth to feed. So a daughter has to be married off early. And uh, so I think we need to see these um, inequalities. Uh, but uh, populism uh, is, I would say, not necessarily the right way to deal with uh, the uh, inequalities because it's somehow preferencing um, a certain portion of the population um, and a country first, as if countries can deal with these problems in a, on, a, on a nationalist footing. And I think that's a, another mistake. We, we actually need to see the problems of inequality, but also the problems of COVID-19 as needing more multilateral approaches. I want to stick on this intersectionality issue because it, it is fascinating. And I wonder what, what can be borrowed from the intersectionality work around climate change and feminism with regard to COVID-19. And, and obviously, time is a lot more compressed. It's only been three or four months since, since this crisis has really man, manifested itself. But what is your sense? I mean, why is this pandemic or how could it be so impactful in terms of its intersectional consequences? Um, I know you've written about this before, but but... How do you think that COVID-19 could amplify inequities around, let's say, power, privilege, or injustice? This is something that I'm zooming about a lot, if I could put it that way, with women leaders of different kinds. Uh, in the last year, I've become a member of a number of groups, the Fearless Women, Connected Women, uh, Global uh, Women Leaders, uh, and so on. And we, we talk a lot about the fact that COVID-19 has exacerbated the pre-existing inequalities, that we had a system that was in fact broken because it wasn't going to lead to a sustainable future, because it wasn't addressing the climate crisis, which is still there, still hovering, still looming uh, behind the, the immediate COVID crisis, and both have to be resolved in the same way. But it is exacerbating these inequalities, um, and it's exacerbating them uh, in uh, simply, uh, you know, recognizing uh, that uh, if you're poor and, uh, you know, uh, you know a, a poor indigenous woman um, in lockdown, <laughs> you're much worse off than, uh, than you were before because uh, all of these issues are compounded in a way. And uh, what we're also seeing is that women leaders are leading better out of um, COVID. Uh, in the different countries. I mean, look at Angela Merkel in uh, Germany, the prime ministers of uh, Norway, Finland, Denmark, Iceland, um, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, the president of Taiwan. They're being given credit for having taken tough decisions, um, caring about their people and actually leading in a way that has their populations trust them and follow. And I think it's, you know, that's an encouraging dimension of if, if you have a commitment to equality, um, it, it helps in addressing the COVID issue. That touches on a quote that you'd said once, which is climate change is a man-made problem that needs a feminist solution. And I guess there, there, there's some very powerful parallels, as you mentioned, to COVID-19, um, because as you said, it's a small sample set, but it's a pretty compelling one in terms of these female leaders 
uh, being able to manage through this crisis comparatively better. Uh, yeah, that, right. that was actually um, that was actually the byline of our uh, <laughs> podcast mm-hmm. um, with with Maeve Higgins uh, called "Mothers of Invention," and I always explain that man-made is generic, so we're all responsible. And hopefully, I say to any live audience that I was sp- speaking to, um, even fairly recently on this issue, um, I would say, and uh, a feminist solution includes men. Mm-hmm. Um, more, the more men, the better. To adopt a more feminist solution. And the feminist solution to me globally is the 2030 agenda with its 17 sustainable development goals. It was adopted in September uh, 2018 by 193 countries. Now that's only, uh, you know, five years ago, less than five years ago. And uh, that agenda is full of language of human rights, of gender equality, goal five, but also leaving no one behind. I mean, it's a, it's a global commitment, which was extraordinary. And I often um, you know, say one of the reasons that we got that agenda, which I observed very closely because I had my mandate as the special envoy of the Secretary General for climate change at the time, we got it because countries agreeing the 2030 agenda with its 17 sustainable development goals considered it to be entirely optional, voluntary. They could pick and choose. But then the scientists were asked by the Paris Climate Agreement to clarify the goal in the Paris Climate Agreement, which was that we should stay well below 2 degrees Celsius and work for 1.5 degrees. And the scientists in October, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, in October 2018, made it clear this actually was the agenda for the whole world uh, for scientific reasons. We had to stay at or below 1.5 degrees to have a livable world for our children and grandchildren. And therefore, my view on the 2030 agenda and indeed the Paris Agreement is they're no longer optional, pick and choose, take it or leave it. They're actually imperative. Well, I want to stick a little bit more on this, on this feminist issue before we move on to the SDGs uh, and, and other frameworks. But I think it's, it's, it's particularly interesting and it sort of resonates to me because I've heard you speak in the past about the importance and power of, of dignity and empathy. And do you think those have a lot to do with with this sort of capacity to manage through this crisis better? Others have pointed to compassion, resilience, pragmatism, and collaboration. Um, or, or is it a reflection of, I guess, a, a more progressive, maybe gender-balanced society where women are often in positions of power? I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mixture of both, actually. Uh, you don't get women leaders unless the society is becoming more progressive. I mean, I know when I was elected president of Ireland in December 1990, it was a signal that Ireland was really opening up. Now, we need to go much further. We're still, we still have problems. There are very, there's really no country that has true gender equality. And that's 25 years after the famous Beijing conference um, on uh, women at a global level that we were to mark this year and sadly has been postponed to next year. But we'll, we'll do it next year. And uh, so if, if, if women do become uh, presidents or prime ministers of their country, it, it's probably a sign of progression, quite obviously. But also, I think women's leadership uh, and men who lead in a feminist way um, are pointing the way. It's less hierarchical. It's more collaborative. It's more problem solving. It's very concerned to listen to the concerns of people and address those concerns. And, you know, when women have become ministers of education or of health, by and large, they are shown to do better because they really care about uh, their 
their people. And in many ways, the struggle that women have had to get into positions of power means they're more questioning of it. I mean, one of the things I found extraordinary and still do, when I meet, as I quite, do quite often, with current and former presidents and prime ministers at a conference or in a green room before a conference, we share our problems, our lack of um, confidence that we're doing it as well as we might do it. There's room for improvement. I never hear these conversations with male leaders, by and large. Let's move on to the UN Guiding Principles for Business and Human Rights. It's an, an area that, that often comes up in, in your discussions, particularly around those values. And, and I'm curious personally, because I've heard that you actually carry a copy of this around. Is that true? No, it's the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that I copyright. I okay, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> but, but I still uh, constantly refer, as you said, to the UN Guiding Principles because they're so important on business and human rights. Got it. My, my mistake. But uh, I guess what I'm wondering is, how do we balance the importance of these values with this sort of increasing loss of faith in politics and norms in, in, in those big multilateral institutions like the World Health Organization or the United Nations? And to be clear, I'm not saying that they're sort of falling apart, but their power seems to be slightly eroding. I think there's a, a problem of the power and capacity of states has been eroded because of the neoliberal ethos, frankly, the sense that the market will solve these problems better. And actually, that's a mistake. If, if you have an unregulated market, you have real problems. And by and large, we've come close to that, particularly in the United States, and we're seeing those problems. So if we don't have governments with a capacity to protect the public goods, like health and education, then we will see... Uh, much worse results from COVID. And that's been borne out. Um, you know, the United States is not coping well because there's no safety net, because um, uh, health is both privatized and privileged and full of gaps. Uh, and, you know, the, um, Obama was trying to solve those with the Affordable Care Act, and even that has been unwound to some extent. And the deregulation um, is a huge mistake. Um, including environmental deregulation, because we need the public goods um, to be protected by states. And the public goods are, uh, you know, having a, a, a effective health systems in countries. Uh, we need to strengthen those in developing countries. We need to learn these lessons. Every country has to be more resilient. Um, education is another public good. And the state doesn't have to run all of it, but has to have a central role in determining that there will be access to education as a human right. I mean, on the value side, I do want to say that when I talk about human rights to an audience, and I still do that relatively often, um, even by Zoom now, uh, I always begin with the Article 1 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which says, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And I pose the question, why does dignity come before rights? Because it's so important, the dignity of the human being is that sense of self and of identity. So if you're homeless and uh, in the street uh, with a cup in front of you begging and people walk past you and completely ignore you, then how do you have a dignity? And so I think too often we've thought of human rights as being uh, more holding to account, holding governments to account, and increasingly holding corporations to account with the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. But there's more to it. It's, it's a cultural dignity of 
um, you know, the, the, the dignity and worth of every person. And that's what we need to remind ourselves of and get back to. And I think COVID-19 in some ways, because it is such a severe shock to what was already, in my view, a broken system, can help us, in the words of the UN, to build back better. I'm curious on this point. I mean, to what degree has the agenda and the formation of the elders, which was founded in 2007 uh, under Nelson Mandela, how, how has the scope uh, and mission changed over the last 13 years, given a lot of the change that we're talking about and, and the fact that this, this multipolar world feels increasingly fragmented and, and frankly in need of this sort of supranational mediation mechanism like the elders? I don't think the values and the mission of the elders has changed at all because uh, we got such a wonderful uh, mission and, and uh, you know, launch from um, Nelson Mandela in uh, 2007, initially at a planning meeting, which I was at in Ulusaba. And we knew that Mandela was joining us because we could hear the singing from outside of all the workers in the, in the place. And it was, it was a beautiful moment. And he read out a statement, which is our mission statement, told us to be independent, um, but to reach out to those who are uh, poorest and most marginalized, uh, women, young people, but also to know that when we went to a place, those in that place knew more than we did. So be humble and listen. And all of those things are still uh, values that we try to emulate, but we have to meet new challenges. At our most recent meeting, which was a virtual meeting uh, just um, a couple of weeks ago, um, or even less, uh, I chaired a virtual board meeting at which we adopted a very strong statement about COVID-19. And we were explicit in criticizing President Trump and criticizing those who don't take seriously their responsibility. But we also adopted a policy paper on multilateralism. And I will be speaking on the 10th of June um, to that uh, paper on multilateralism, a kind of pre-launch for the Forum of Small States in the UN system. Uh, this is a forum that I frankly didn't know very much about, but it's chaired at the moment by Singapore. And they've decided to mark the 75th anniversary of the UN. And they've invited me, they've invited the Secretary General, the President of the General Assembly, but also I've been invited as Chair of the Elders to give a short keynote at the start of their discussion. And I think it's important to remember that the hundred or so members of the Forum of Small Island States, not small island states, of small states, actually support multilateralism. So we have some large countries, and I'm, you know, I think particularly of the United States, I think of Brazil, I think of some Eastern European countries, I think in different ways of, say, China, Turkey, um, uh, Indonesia, and, um, um, uh, the Philippines, uh, as you know, being uh, more populist, um, and in the case of China, it's going its own way um, on um, many of the values. Um, but uh, what, I'm, what I'm really saying is, the vast majority of states still want a functioning, good multilateral system. And uh, they have to be a voice now for um, encouraging the need for um, you know, a, a more multilateral approach that sees that no country can deal with a situation like COVID-19 on its own. Hmm. It just it poses some really fascinating questions about the primacy of the state, the role of the state vis-a-vis these multilateral institutions, um, clearly that where there have been so much tension, particularly with the U.S. and, and the U.N. And, and the World Health Organization. You know, th- there's a tragic irony, though, that, that many of the most progressive socioeconomic advancements 
unfortunately follow crises. Um, the post-war period saw the creation of the uh, NHS in the UK, the Social Security Act in the United States. But when you look in sort of recent history, the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009, never really addressed the underlying inequality issues. How do you think that sort of tees up um, the the sort of opportunity to maybe reassess, you know, kind of structural issues? Um, I, I think that's really a very central question. And I think we have to look back at the financial crisis um, of 2008 and see that the way in which we came out of it exacerbated the inequalities, uh, bailed out the banks and, and caused great austerity for people um, uh, at all different levels. And, uh, you know, it was a very painful time. And we continue to have greater inequality because of that approach. Um, I think there are lessons that we can learn from COVID-19 itself, which are important. And they, you know, let me just rehearse a few of them. First of all, behavior matters. Human behavior matters. It's that that is helping us to cope with the crisis, with the COVID crisis, because we have no vaccine. So our collective restraint, our collective willingness to be in lockdown, compliance with what governments are saying um, is uh, helping those who are more vulnerable, the elders like myself, and also health workers, care workers, those providing the essential services. And who are they? The essential services comes down to low-paid cleaning jobs, low-paid taking out the bins, waste jobs, etc. Um, so we must you know, re revalue um, that essential public service work. Um, secondly, science matters. Governments are listening to their health experts, and the governments that aren't listening to their health experts are not doing as well. Thirdly, government matters at all levels. It matters at the state level or even the federal level. It matters at the local level, the city, the town, etc., because um, the, uh, the compliance has to be um, led at those levels. And we will see the cruel exposure of governments that are failing to deal adequately uh, with COVID-19. We're already seeing it. The, the, the disproportionately um, sick and dying in de democratic countries which should have done better and why. And we will look at those lessons. And then there's also a lesson of compassion. Um, I, I always emphasize that COVID-19 is not a great leveler. I've heard some people say it's a great leveler because we're all suffering. Oh no, we're not all suffering equally. It's on the contrary, uh, COVID-19 um, exacerbates the inequalities, but we are all suffering. And when you're suffering, you're more open to the suffering of others. That's been proven in many, many studies. Uh, we, it, it develops an empathy for the suffering of others. And we're seeing that in countries all over the world and neighborhoods all over the world, helping those who are worse off, who are homeless, who need food aid, who need um, uh, special help. We see money being raised all over the place to get the PPEs um, that governments have been able to provide and so on. And that is um, a strength because it's a value. Yeah, I've seen that firsthand. Incidentally, I was in Singapore in late January when the first couple of cases had broken out in the country and uh, I went through the self-quarantine, but I was absolutely blown away with the efforts by the Ministry of Health to uh, provide transparency, to to do contract tracing, to do testing. It was um, 
you know, they, they managed to do that in a way, and obviously it's a city state. So, so logistically a little bit easier, but in a way um, that, that uh, many other countries either didn't have the ambitions or, or weren't capable of, of, of doing. Um, but I think, I think that there will actually be a very raw, cruel exposure and the exposure will be an exposure of populist leaders who think that they know better than the scientists. It will be very cruel in terms of deaths of their populations. We're seeing it already. One area that this really stands out is um, the progressive sort of sustainability agenda within the European Union. Um, you know, I, I would I would certainly sort of point to that as the um, exception to the populism and sort of chaos and and, and confusion and, and and disavowal of experts and scientists in, in many other countries. Um, what, what What's the opportunity in your mind in terms of as a state, you know, or, or as the EU providing uh, government support um, during this crisis, but, but also using it as an opportunity, this crisis to push through more progressive agenda items like the sustainable finance package, like the just transition? Yeah, I think it's really important that we have leadership on this issue from the EU, but also from other parts of the world. But just taking the EU, the Green New Deal is extraordinarily important. And so is the EU biodiversity um, uh, policy now, which uh, is side by side with the Green New Deal, because it's also seeing that we need nature-based solutions, that we need to protect 30% of the land, 30% of the water um, of the EU um, under the campaign for for nature. Um, we also need where um, there is a kind of nationalization of companies, um, uh, you know, I mean, even car companies and airlines in the, in the short term. This is an opportunity for governments to say, but we're doing it on the basis that we will be uh, having a policy of reducing significantly emissions to get to zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Uh, that, that has to be the goal now of uh, um, countries, of towns, of cities, of companies, um, of communities, basically. It has to be an all-of-country and all-of-community approach um, as we move out of COVID-19 in a way that reflects the other looming crisis, um, the climate crisis. It has not gone away. We have less than 10 years now to reduce by 45% the carbon emissions which the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, warned us we must do in uh, October 2018. So uh, there is an opportunity in this crisis. As I said, we had a broken system, uh, at least we had a failing system, let's put it that way, that is now broken by COVID. We have to address that, and we have to probably spend money addressing it, which may sound strange that we would borrow more, but what we're borrowing is our children's money, and we're borrowing it to secure their future. And I think that's more than justified. Yeah, you, you point to a lot of these points in your recent Open Democracy article called Shaping a New Social Contract Through the Pandemic, which clearly has the parallels to, to climate change. Um, what, what do you think the, the necessary ingredients are for this social license to operate? And, and in particular, I'm wondering how you sort of solve for that horizons problem, the fact that it's not just central banks or, or investors, it's businesses. We're, we're, we tend to be so 
short-sighted in terms of, of, of planning. How, how can we stretch that out, um, particularly when it comes to climate change? Well, certainly we are seeing some leadership um, in investment. Um, people like Mark Carney, for example, whom I uh, was having a discussion with recently, uh, he now has his mandate on climate and finance leading up to the next conference on climate, which was to have been in Glasgow this year. It's been postponed to next year. Uh, but it will be really important because we have to have ambition of countries. Hopefully all countries will commit to be zero carbon by 2050 and then work backwards as to what steps need to be taken. And that's what the European Union, uh, to its credit, has done. Um, but we also need to uh, see more um, collaboration with other parts of the world. I mean, there has to be some concern that China, which had the early problem in Wuhan, as we know, and then dealt with it in a Chinese way and has now begun to reopen its economy, it's begun to build more coal, uh, more coal-powered uh, stations to fire up its economy. Re that's very regrettable because China also um, has done very well in the sense of being a lead country on clean energy, on wind and on solar and on electric vehicles. That's the way to go. That's the way to, and we need the, the green jobs in retrofitting homes and retrofitting buildings generally, retrofitting um, um, transport, um, having cities more people-centered, um, places where the air remains clean and we can hear the birds singing and people can walk around, cycle around, more cycle paths, more public transport. Um, so for business, um, the business and human rights guiding principles that we mentioned earlier are really important because that was the first time that the UN Human Rights Council unanimously said that it's not just governments that have a responsibility. The responsibility is different. Governments have a responsibility to protect and promote the human rights of their um, people. But um, corporations have a lesser responsibility, but a real responsibility to respect all human rights. And in order to respect human rights, you have to know what's happening in your corporation and in your supply chain. And the longer the supply chain, the more it's necessary to know what is happening at the, at the latter end, if I could put it that way. You have to have a due, due diligence and a due diligence report and a responsibility within corporations. Now, there are a number, a significant number of companies that are complying with this, but by no means even 50% of the corporations of the world. And we need to widen that circle. How do you think about the trade-offs with respect to business rights, and in particular human rights that we're being forced to make um, through the COVID-19 crisis? And, you know, potentially we will have to make these trade-offs uh, in preparing for uh, around climate action. But with regard to COVID-19, what you're finding is short-term benefits and potential long-term risks. The benefits are, for instance, e-commerce. They help us deal with self-isolation, being able to go online and, and, and do shopping. The longer-term impact is, is around employment, uh, particularly in the local areas. Another one that a lot of people are trying to get their heads around is uh, the privacy rights. So clearly there's an urgency and an absolute need for contract tracing technologies um, currently. The long-term worry is to what degree will this handover of that data erode our privacy rights um, on an individual level? Yes, I think that is um, a, a real concern, particularly in more autocratic systems, um, that the 
uh, need to contact uh, trace, the need to um, see who is potentially going to spread the COVID-19. Um, th that's extremely important, especially in the absence of a vaccine yet. Um, and uh, it, it means that you can have um, a, a real surveillance of a population that can be used in different ways. And as I say, particularly in autocratic uh, societies, that, that, that is a problem. There is also a genuine, and I think a very real worry, about uh, the way in which e-commerce, as you say, working from home under lockdown, is going to change uh, jobs and the workplace. Uh, I've heard you know, quite a lot of people uh, you know, expressing the view, yes, it's, it's good to be able to work from home to some extent, but you know, being compelled, if you like, to work from home would not be good because it's isolated, it's lonely, you miss the social contact and interaction, uh, you miss the brainstorming with colleagues that helps um, to uh, come up with some good ideas, etc. And there aren't necessarily the safeguards at home, um, uh, you know, the health um, and other safeguards that would be in a, in, a, in, a, in a workplace. So, you know, some of the tech companies that are over-encouraging working from home um, may not be uh, being helpful. And then what about when we come out of the, uh, the, the, the where, where are the jobs? And I'm very encouraged by those who see a lot of green jobs. I mean, take the insulating of houses, which has to happen um, in many countries um, where um, they at the moment are very wasteful of energy and it's fossil fuel energy. Um, so they have to get um, clean energy and more insulation in their homes it's estimated that could cost between 20 and 30,000, whether it's pounds or euros or dollars, um, you know, for, for average households. Um, that should be supported by the state and the jobs should be, you know, a matter of huge training in those jobs and switching people from equivalent kind of jobs, probably in the fossil fuel area, into uh, the clean energy jobs and having a just transition. That, that's extraordinarily important and you, you, you mentioned it. Um, I'm very aware that uh, we need to address the fact that, you know, uh, the industrialized countries built their economies on fossil fuel and we have to be grateful for the workers who contributed to that and they mustn't now be abandoned by sudden closures of coal plants, which is happening as we know particularly in the United States, leaving the workers with no safety net and, and, and no possibilities. Um, we see good examples in some European countries. Spain, for example, has a very big fund for just transition. The European Green Deal has a big fund, even a much bigger fund for uh, just transition. Here in Ireland, where peat workers have to uh, be laid off much earlier because um, turf is actually very bad. It's worse than coal and doesn't even provide as much heat. We have to get out of it. It's painful because the bogs are in a particular part of central Ireland where there's a great culture of the bog. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing. We, we have a commissioner on just transition who's just issued a report. And, you know, we, we know that the hard lessons of how to move forward that have to be implemented now in order to do this in a way that brings people with us. I want to go back to the point you made around corporates and particularly investors. Um, you know, it feels like a sea change over the last decade plus 
in terms of the landscape of, of institutional investors, um, thanks to many factors, whether it's civil society, whether it's the UN-supported principles for responsible investment. Um, but they're clearly playing a larger role. Corporates are committing to climate commitments, you know, on a 2030 or 2050 basis. We can quibble around you know, the, the ambitions around that, but, but they're doing things that, that historically they haven't necessarily done. And, and investors, particularly through collaborative engagements, are, are becoming a more powerful uh, force to nudge or around activism. I wondered, you know, is the emergence of this a response, again, to the fact that, that governments, certainly not all, but, but some governments are just sort of in decline, you know, either unable or unwilling to um, fulfill that traditional role of protecting and serving citizens? Well, I certainly agree that uh, the uh, need for transparency in investments, in particular at this stage, um, is important to know uh, how much and what percentage of investments going into fossil fuel, for example, from World Bank to IMF to European um, uh, um, uh, climate, you know, all, all of the, the investments um, uh, to the Japanese and Koreans, the Chinese, the Belt and Road, how much is going into uh, uh, clean um, infrastructure and investment. And um, I, I'm glad to see that that is a growing um, issue. Uh, but we also, uh, you know, we need to recognize that uh, the, the, the way in which uh, investment happens is greatly assisted by government policy. I mean, we are seeing in the United States at the moment, sadly, uh, the unraveling of some environmental protection. It's been happening under the Trump administration. It's accelerating, if anything, because the pressure from the fossil fuel lobby. Um, the, there's a potential 750 billion in bonds or something um, for the fossil fuel industry that is being proposed. Um, that's the wrong way to go. And it's not clever because that's not where the jobs are going to be in the future. Uh, we need a... Um, a, tra a transition which is just and balanced. We need the fossil fuel in the, sh in the short and medium term to get to a zero carbon economy by 2050. But we need to make sure that all the investment is going, is aligned with the commitments in the Paris uh, Climate Agreement and as interpreted by the um, Intergovernmental Panel on, on Climate Change. So, um, you know, we, we really need investment and corporations to work in an aligned way with the policies of government. It's up to governments to remove all subsidies on fossil fuel, to have a proper price on carbon, uh, both uh, nationally and globally, so that we are not subsidizing what harms us. On the contrary, we're penalizing it because we should be. The point around the U.S. and the rollback in environmental regulations, I, I completely agree in, in, a, in the most disheartening way. Uh, one of my previous guests, Alice Hill, who is Director of Resilience in the National Security Council in the Obama White House, um, is fantastic, but, but she painted this absolutely depressing poetry of, of, of what all of this meant in terms of you know, the erosion and in interagency cooperation in the funding of research, in um, the dismantling of building standards, you know, all that architecture that takes years and years uh, to capacity build. But that architecture is extremely important, as she would have pointed out. Mm. And that's why I say we need um, a, a new contract uh, between uh, governments and the corporate sector and investment as we go forward. And it has to be 
uh, very much aligned with the uh, need for ambition to be zero carbon by 2050. That's the key. And if we can work backwards from that at all levels and do it with a sense of justice and, and the dignity and worth and the 2030 agenda with its sustainable development goals and leaving no one behind. And that's the key in coming out of COVID-19. And, you know, I have agreed with the cliche that it's too severe and too good an crisis to waste. Hmm. The, the, just on that point around frameworks, um, thanks to Mark Carney, the Chinese, uh, the G20, there's been a, a very strong support in terms of trying to, push out the TCFD, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial yeah. Disclosure, but it's it's become a, a sort of unequivocal in terms of a powerful material framework around climate risk for, for corporates, for, for, for companies, for investors, et cetera. Um, and I, I do wonder what the analog, what the parallel is on the human rights side or within the quote S, the social dimension, because one of the traditional issues, I mean, it, it clearly has been pushed to the forefront um, during the COVID-19 crisis and thanks um, to the just transition, it's sort of been extended and, and, and brought back into uh, environmental objectives, these social objectives. But, but how do you think about building a TCFD-like framework around, you know, that social human rights dimension when, you know, uh, unfortunately, many of these rights sort of fall to jurisdictional interpretation, whether it's around uh, collective bargaining or zero hour contracts? Yeah, I think it's harder, but uh, I work closely with my friend Sharon Burrow, who's head of the ITUC. And she is very, uh, you know, kind of concerned to see that we come out of this with much greater social protection. Um, And there is a mood for that. You know, the uh, the very way in which countries have done extraordinary things to continue, you know, to support furloughed workers, to introduce unemployment benefits which weren't there before, and so on, um, is, 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 is an indication. And I think um, we, we are seeing uh, more uh, corporate awareness that perhaps we have to move into um, a a, a, a system for the future. I mean, I work with the B team of business leaders and they're at the forefront of discussing these issues. Um, and uh, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, it would be wonderful to have a task force that was kind of investment led on human rights, um, uh, that we would take very seriously uh, the UN guidelines and convert them from guidelines into something more imperative. That would be wonderful. Um, the, the guidelines on business and human rights, um, because they also, um, are, uh, you know, very uh, important in showing corporations how to uh, protect and promote human rights in their corporations and how to work with governments um, to reinforce the greater responsibility that governments have um, by recognizing that corporations also have their responsibility to respect all human rights. If we could somehow uh, fortify that system, I'd be all for it, needless to say. Last question. Um, students make up a big percentage of the of the listening audience for this podcast and i'm often asked the question uh, around what advice i'd give them if they were looking you know at, at pursuing an interest in climate justice or human rights or some other area within sustainability either through politics law policy civil society or another course and, and i'd like to turn that to you given um 
I, I guess the breadth of, of what you've done as an academic, as a, as a politician, as a lawyer, what sort of advice, what learning could you offer, particularly having run into so many challenges, you know, in life, either through, you know, legislative change, you know, in Ireland in the late 1960s to, you know, the current uh, climate agenda that you're working towards? I'm just really impressed by the contribution that young people are making already. I mean, look at the movement of young, um, you know, led to some extent by Greta Thunberg, but she's one of millions and wants to be one of millions, not just um, a name. And I've met many of the young people who reminded us forcibly about the injustice, the intergenerational injustice of climate change at a time when countries were not paying attention and they marched and stro you know, went on strike, Fridays for Future, Extinction Rebellion, all of these movements, um, uh, the Sunrise Movement in the United States, or is it yeah, Sunrise Movement, I think, um, all of these are examples of young people who listened to the science and realized that their future was not being secured. So I, I want to say how impressed I am with uh, the younger generation because uh, they, uh, they know that we're not on course at the moment for a safe world for them and for their children and grandchildren. And so uh, I, I would certainly encourage them to be on the right side of this um, at all stages, but to be thoughtful um, about just transition, to be thoughtful about the values of leaving no one behind in the 2030 agenda. The fact that uh, countries uh, in the global south are suffering more from COVID-19 because investment has fled back to the rich countries to help them to secure um, the support for workers who are furloughed, etc. And commodities have gone through the floor um, and they have sometimes food crises. I mean, um, informal workers work for their food. So if they don't work, they don't have food. And we are seeing, um, you know, children malnourished in some countries. You know, I would like young people to be very thoughtful about how interconnected we are in our world and try to, um, to really live the values of the 2030 agenda and its 17 sustainable development goals. It's a wonderful agenda, which was agreed by 193 countries. So, you know, including at the time, the United States under President Obama. And it is, um, it is the future. And young people have an enormous capacity to help us to get over the mistakes which my generation and the generation after me have made in not, um, you know, not moving towards a safe world. Um, young people are leading on this, and I love that leadership. Um, Kofi Annan, who was chair of the elders before me, and of course, former secretary general, he had a lovely phrase, you are never too young to lead, and you are never too old to learn. I think it's a lovely phrase. Hmm. Well, that's a, a wonderful and hopeful way to, to finish off. So uh, thank you so much. It's been fascinating to understand how the COVID-19 crisis and climate change is amplifying inequities with socioeconomic trade-offs, the pandemic and climate change is forcing us to choose between and why a new social contract between business and government needs to be forged. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and views. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Mary Robinson, former president of Ireland and UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks so much, Mary. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you very much, Jason. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. 
To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri podcast or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.